I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Mary and Max. <laughs> Mary Dinkle's eyes were the colour of muddy puddles. Her only friends were the noblest from her favourite cartoon. She wished she had some friends. Mary had an idea. Dear Mr. Horowitz, I am eight years old. I have a wish to call Ethel. It would be great if you could write back and be my friend. Dear Mary, thank you for the letter. I have never met anyone from Australia. I share my home with a fish, a parakeet, an invisible friend called Mr. Ravioli. People often confuse me. I have trouble understanding them. Maybe this is why I don't have any friends. Dear Max, in your letter you said you had no friends. Neither do I. Can you help me? Dear Mary, do you like chocolate hot dogs? Where do babies come from in America? Do they come from cola cans? <laughs> Have you got a girlfriend, Max? Can you explain love? Be a creep! I find the world very confusing and chaotic. <gasps> Dear Max, I don't think my parents like you. People often think I am tactless and rude. I cannot understand how being honest can be Improper? You are my best friend, my only friend. P.S. Did you know that turtles can breathe through their anuses? Ooh. This is a commissioned show from Chris Kelly, and it's a very special film to him, which we had neither seen nor heard of. And we are going to have to describe it to you listeners as we go, as statistically only about 3% of you will have seen it. Maybe a slightly higher likelihood if you're Australian or seriously into indie animation. We had no idea what to expect beyond the appealing pitch, which is that it's a meticulously crafted, virtually monochromatic stop-motion animation narrated by Barry Humphreys with a quirky sensibility. The story of two pen friends, Mary Daisy Dinkle, an Australian girl played by young Daisy Whitmore, and then Tony Collette when she grows up, and New York Jewish atheist Max Horowitz, played by the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman. The pair connect by chance and spend many, many years corresponding, sharing their quirky oddball lives and trying to overcome some serious challenges. Familial, psychological and societal. Much like Harold and Maud, the story follows their friendship, which endures through the 1970s and 80s, despite them being separated by age and, of course, geography. They have various things in common. The film explores in an unabashed and often fairly blunt fashion a series of mental conditions. It's disarming and surprising and sometimes quite dark, uncomfortable and upsetting, but it's ultimately touching and has a kind of tragically uplifting ending, which we can definitely talk about at the end. Released in 2009, this is, to date, the only major film directed by Adam Elliott, who also helmed the award-winning short Harvey Crumpet, which shares many similarities and in many ways feels like a prototype for this. It cost 8.2 Australian dollars, and it was so strange and niche that it only made back 1.7 million US. 
Our sponsor, Chris, specifically requested that we recruit the hosts of the Two Shrinks podcast to discuss this with. Being Australian and well-studied in mental conditions, he suspected they would have a lot to say, and we hope he's right. So hello again to Hunter Mulcair. Hello. And hello, Amy Donaldson. Hi. Now, of the four of us, considering the psychological nature of this film, I am literally the least qualified to lead the conversation. So I've got my own notes and findings and observations, but I am deferring to Sharon to frame the questions for the group. So over to you, my co-host. Hello. Move um, in. Move right, in. okay. This is, um, <laughs> is going to be a, unusual for me because I'm not used to leading the conversation, but um, uh, I was really quite blown away by how this film is framed and um, while I am a little bit nervous about talking about it uh, simply because it is so rooted in reality and um, most films that present um, either mental health issues or um, uh, neurodiversity or, or things of that nature are vague-ish and non-specific and um, work in fairly broad brushstrokes. And it's rare that you get something that applies a specific label and then tries to represent uh, that label and the things that surround and interact with it um, as accurately as they can, given that obviously everybody who experiences any kind of... of um, mental or cognitive difference uh, is is a human being in their own right and very different from everybody else around them who also has that label uh, it's it can be difficult to sum up in a film in a way that is both recognizable and on point so if we start then with something that i think shapes the interpretation of the film so i thought it was it, probably sensible to tackle this first Throughout this, there is a, a God perspective narrator who takes us through all the elements of what goes on in the film. So if we could start with a little outline of what actually happens and how the, uh, the perspective of the narrator outlining what's going on in the film influences how we take it in. I might actually be somewhat useful for this one. I'm pretty good at summarising films. <laughs> yeah, so that I'm, would be yeah. helpful if you could okay. start with that. Mary Dinkle's eyes were the colour of muddy puddles. Her birthmark, the colour of poo. Mary's father, Noel Norman Dinkle, worked in a factory attaching the strings to tea bags. At show and tell, she told the class he could get as many free tea bags as he wanted. Her favourite tea bag was Earl Grey. She loved saying Earl Grey and would like one day to marry someone called Earl Grey. They would live in a castle in Scotland, have nine babies, two ducks and a dog called Kevin. Noel's hobby was to sit in his shed and drink Bailey's Irish Cream and stuffed birds he'd found on the side of the freeway. Mary wished he'd spend more time with her, and less with his dead friends. 
She also wished she had some brothers and sisters. Her mother had told her she was an accident. How could someone be an accident? Grand Poppy Ralph had told her that babies were deliberate and found by dads at the bottom of their beer. Grand Poppy Ralph had smelt like pickled onions and had been a member of the Frankston Icebreakers for 51 years. They swam in winter to feel alive. Grand Poppy Ralph had said it made his nipples erect. Mary missed him and often wondered why he had drunk ammonia. Vera liked listening to the cricket while baking and her main ingredient was always sherry. She told Mary it was a type of tea for grown-ups that needed constant testing. Mary thought her mother tested the sherry way too much. So we start with uh, little Mary in 70s Australia, and she's living with two parents, one of whom to me seems negligent and the other of whom to me seems abusive. And she's not especially happy, but she's got her own quirks and interests and seems to be able to hyper-focus. And one day she looks through, I think it's a phone book, and finds Max's name and address in there. And apropos of nothing, decides to write to this total stranger in New York. And Max is initially completely freaked out by the fact that a total stranger has written to him. He goes off and has an anxiety attack. But then he gets over himself in that instance and pulls himself together and actually just answers her questions directly since they're quite specific. And then he writes to her and she writes back. And over the course of the the, the next few years, he shares a lot of how he lives and the, the, the quirks of his and the specificities of his condition even while he's feeling it out himself, he's not even diagnosed with Asperger's until later in the film. As Mary grows up, she decides she wants to specialise in mental illness. And so she goes to college, she writes a whole thesis and publishes it as a book, using Max as a case study without his permission. And when he finds out about that, he very understandably uh, hits the roof and tries to express himself in writing and ends up just violently ripping the M key out of his typewriter and simply sending her that with a little red pom-pom that she made him, effectively ending their correspondence. Uh, Mary falls into a deep depression, pulps her novel, doesn't release it, doesn't make anything on his uh, uh, condition. And in fact, uh, the uh, the papers say about her that she has effectively pulped her own career as well. Mm. Um, her In the interim years, her father has uh, retired and then died of tidal wave-based causes. And then her mother has uh, also died of uh, more nebulous reasons that we'll probably talk about soon. And she's married and then her husband has left her because she's fallen into this deep depression and also he's found out that he's gay, which is two very big contributing reasons at the same time and and they both seem to gang up at once. And Mary comes close to suicide, but at the exact point she's considering it and 
um, it, this is a very dark moment of the film. I think for me, uh, we hadn't expected it, and uh, like Lyra was very upset, and we hadn't actually watched the film first to uh, uh, to prep ourselves and her. But uh, she gets a package from Max, uh, who has um, in a pol- in attempting to reconcile because he's recognised that she has erred and made a. Um, a grave mistake. He uh, has forgiven her and sent her his Noblet collection, which is the Smurfs that they both particularly love, as a, a peace offering. And uh, she then goes to see him in New York, something she'd been planning to do for years and years. And she ended up spending the money initially on removing a birthmark that she had associated with the reasons why she was unhappy, because a lot of them were rooted in her own uh, sense of uh, low self-esteem to do with her own physical self-worth. When she finally gets to New York, she goes to Max's apartment with her new baby on her back, and Max has died just now he was an oldish man and uh it was uh a specific well we'll talk about the specifics of the death but ultimately it's a very bittersweet ending she sits with her friend uh on the couch and then looks up and sees all of her letters to him over the years have been laminated and attached to the ceiling so that he could look at them and effectively that's his filing system they're the thing that kept him um feeling like he was connected to the world so it's dreadfully sad and reassuring and we're left with that so that's the basic plot Mm -hmm. and you folks can go in and focus on whatever aspects of that you like as we move forwards now that everyone's had this kind of outlined for them yeah cool okay um what i wanted to say about the the effect of this being presented by a narrator which is not wildly common um, in films, generally speaking, the the interaction between the characters and the visuals of the film tell the story on their own. But I think having a narrator for this and having a, a narrator who is there so often, because he, he does give an overview of almost every scene, there's some element of narration there. He's there in substitution of speech. People don't really interact by talking. Yeah. You very rarely see the uh, armature dolls. They, they look like claymation, but you mm. very rarely see them say words that are coming directly out of their mouths. They yeah. often, we get their internal thinking and writing letters mm, but we yeah. don't get we them don't see much in the way of, of direct interaction it's specific that they are both very lonely people as well indeed but i think having that narrator it allows the audience to understand the motivations behind max and mary's behaviors without needing them to explain themselves very frequently um as the film progresses max does get in a bit more in his letters into um explaining what lies behind some of the things that he does and that does influence our perception of him as a character because from at the beginning of the film the impression that i got is that they don't understand themselves, particularly Mary. And if you have them constantly elucidating why they do what they do, then that disrupts that impression. Having the narrator elucidate on why they do what they do allows that impression to stand until, as I say, in Max's case particularly, he's progressed and... um, uh, and 
shared things with his psychiatrist, who is of questionable competence they always in certain are. elements. Used, like, in, there's in a some, handful of psychologists, yeah. psychiatrists, therapists in movies who have ever been anything but mm. harmful to In, in some elements, I thought that the advice and, and, um, and observations that the psychiatrist gave were actually quite on point. Dr. Oakman in uh, Gross Point Blank speaks yeah, to mind. Indeed. Um, <laughs> but he, he doesn't seem able to relate to Max very well, <laughs> which is... Um, which is kind of, you know, what you want from your mental health professionals is somebody who can relate to you. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that, that for me is sort of the purpose of, of having the narrator is so that we can know what is underneath mm. their actions without having to have them know too much about them at, at that stage. And for that, he has to be a reliable narrator. Yeah. And Barry absolutely. Humphreys has a very matter-of-fact tone to it. Yeah, voice. and that also I think is is really beneficial because the other element of this is that it gives us um very specific interpretations of of their behaviors. And it's very easy for those behaviours to be misinterpreted in the real world. We see people behaving in certain ways, but without the presence of Barry Humphreys saying, ah, well, the reason they've just done that is, which might possibly diffuse the situation a little bit sometimes, we leap to conclusions about why people are behaving in certain ways. We make judgments about what's influenced their actions. They don't always get the opportunity to explain why they've done certain things, and if they do, we might not believe them. So how Having a narrator say, yep, yeah, this is exactly why they've done this, it makes it much clearer and it makes it much um, uh, much easier for us to take on board quickly and effectively behaviours that we might be very, very unfamiliar with. In your letter, you said you had no friends. Well, neither do I. <laughs> Yesterday at school... Bernie Clifford weed on my spam sandwich and called me poo face because of my birthmark. I wish I could peel it off like a band-aid. He also laughed because I had no buttons. Ethel picked them off and Mum couldn't thread a needle because she'd been testing the sherry. So she used picks instead. When I got home, I climbed into my secret place till dinner time. The other kids also laugh at my haircut. Dad has to cut my hair because Mum says real hairdressers sell your hair to Chinamen who stuff mattresses. My teacher, Mrs Pendergast, says I should smile more. I told my mum and so she drawed a big smile on me. I don't think Mrs Pendergast likes me anymore. I better go now. My tears are smudging my words. Your friend in Australia, Mary Daisy Dinkle. P.S. Have you ever been teased? Can you help me? P.S.S. I've never been hang gliding before or been a communist, but would love a frisbee and your recipe for chocolate hot dogs. P.S.S.S. I'm sending you some Australian chocolate, a pom-pom I made, and a cake called a lamington, which I was meant to eat for lunch. 
listening to all of that, Sharon, it makes me really sort of reflect on the film and that it's a very uh, literal presentation of what's going on mm. in mm. both their lives. And, you know, it, and, and the, the narrator reinforces that literalness. Like, it's like, this is, this is the reason. And there's not, there's not really sort of a debate, you know, you, there's not that unreliable narrator kind of component to it or another person looking at their their behavior and going oh you know or you know no that's not why you're doing it you're doing it because of this reason right and that in some way i think reflects asperger's in Mm. that uh in that when you talk to work with someone with that condition the thing you're struck by is the lack of sort of subtle picking up subtle cues and and sort of uh they're very literal and so you have to think in a much more literal and direct kind of way and i think the film sort of actually reflects that and i think you can miss that if you don't if you're not sort of looking for it you can kind of just sort of turn your brain off a bit but i think and there's and the amy and i were talking a little bit about maybe amy's got some words on it uh to talk about sort of the setup of the film young girl befriends older man seems unsettling uh, mm-hmm. but then when like you're sort of saying it's explained in this way and you're not unsettled by it or, or you're mm-hmm. less you're more comfortable with it I think um, but it's made and, very clear from the get go that Mary isn't actually the least bit interested in Max in that way she asks him questions which are difficult to answer but it's clearly because she's got such rotten parents, or at least her mother's that rotten and she never sees her dad, that she's got no one to ask questions mm. that an inquisitive young girl who's growing up would want to. And yep. Max, out of in this, is immediately made very upset and sweaty and like, oh my God, this is questions about love? I don't know about love! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's quite... Um... You know, watching it, I think because Mary reminds me so much of so many of my clients with that sort of, um, you know, vulnerable kid who's isolated and whose uh, parents perhaps are struggling, I think, um, you know, my sort of radar was up right from the beginning and it was that sort of thing of going, I can completely understand why she's reached out to a stranger to try and get you know, answers and connection and all of those things. But the, um, you know, psychologist in me was thinking about all of the, you know, how risky that is and and going, you know, she's an eight-year-old who's really putting herself in a fair bit of danger and probably the only thing that evens it out a bit is his mental state. And then as we were watching it, I said to Hunter, I'm slowly feeling more comfortable. And I think it was that as she grew and developed, then I felt more like the power differential wasn't so big, mm. that it kind of evened out enough that I went, okay, this is more of a, you know, even relationship yeah. versus mm. an adult talking to a child. And I think the, just sort of on that, the, her journey is of being uncomfortable in the world and very lonely mm. She becomes more comfortable, as, as, as Alex described. You know, she gets more self-esteem and all that kind of stuff. And I think you, you, you do as a viewer become more comfortable with what's going on. Mm. Uh, you know, it's sort of, it, it's sort of interesting. It, the, the movie works on, on, a, on that kind of level as well as just sort of the general 
narrative and description of what's going on. Mm. So, yeah. and it's it's not as if they don't acknowledge that there is a big, massive question mark over this whole thing. Um, and I think the combination of um, the the fact that Mary's mother, for a start, who is not what you would call the template of the ideal parent, but still has enough uh, maternal responsibility, I suppose, to intercept Max's initial letter and Mm. kind of... I mean, she doesn't respond in a particularly uh, sympathetic or compassionate way. She just goes, no, this person is not going to write to my daughter. This is bad. You're making her seem so much more level-headed. She screams and goes, ah! And throws it in the trash... (laughs) <laughs> and then slips on bird shit and throws this trash bag into the I air, whereupon it, it bursts, <laughs> and a small chicken picks up the letter and sneaks it to Mary, who disobediently takes it behind her mother's back. And uh, then uh, it's it's a ridiculously over-the-top scene, but you're right. Uh, it, the mother is is there as the sort of ethical, this shouldn't be happening at all. The, the point... But that sets us in opposition to her. It does. Because she's already been shown to be a complete wreck herself and horrible to Mary. Absolutely. But the point so being... So like Mary's best interests are already in question. Absolutely. But because we have access to the narrator and she does not, it at least allows them to uh, hang a lampshade on the recognition that from the outside, the initiation of this particular relationship would be questioned by the average person. Hmm. Although hmm. Uh, the wording specifically is she's not going to uh, have a pen pal relationship with this weirdo. Yes, so it's it's not even specifically this is a man this is a man who lives in uh, New York it's he's a weirdo yes no I I know <laughs> like I said and this is one of the reasons why we need the narrator <laughs> it was time to watch the Noblets she adored the Noblets because everyone was brown lived in a teapot and had oodles of friends. Meanwhile, a man called Max Horowitz also watched the Noblets. Max's small television had picture, but no sound. His big television, sound, but no picture. He was 44 and liked the Noblets because they lived in a delineated and articulated social structure with constant adherent conformity. And also because they had oodles of friends. Just on the topic of the uh, the overview of the film, by the way, does anybody have anything to say about the use of the songs? And music. Mm. I mean, there's a couple of songs that sort of um, stick out to me in key themes, but probably no specific comments about it. I think I was more struck by the, the visuals, I mean, and I don't know, mm. just in terms of just some of the Australian references. Mm. Uh, yeah, you were going to say something about the fact that since you grew up in Australian neighbourhoods in the 70s and 80s, uh, I'm assuming, um, like how accurate is this? Uh, um, surprisingly, uh, <laughs> surprisingly, like quite accurate in many ways. So the, the house they live in is what we would call a brick veneer house. Um, and like the, the sh- there's a shot of the gate and their uh brick fence which has got some iron work in it and um my my house has a very similar <laughs> fence like almost exactly the same iron work um so there's and there's a look 
I, I don't know whether it's I, when I watch Australian films, I often see like a dry, sun bleached look that uh, when I compare it to, say, other international films. And I'm not sure if it's like a style that Australian films make or. I don't know, something to do with the light here or maybe we use poor quality film or something, but it's certainly reflected in this. And so, like, mm. I think when I travel overseas and then come back home, um, uh, you know, there's a particular dryness to our environment that I think I think is Particularly captured. Particularly in summer, that kind yeah. of... It, it's really uh, baking and often, you know, the grass and stuff like that doesn't survive our summer, so there's lots mm. of just brown shrubs um and yeah i think i found it amusing because i spent my teenage years in a suburb right next to the one that this is set in and so i immediately felt like it immediately felt familiar and the style of houses is very um popular in the housing estates that are all around that area there's sort of uh, a bunch of developers who filled the place with those very similar, slightly different coloured bricks, but all pretty much the same. Yeah, and and even sort of like some small touches around the the bright red uh, letterboxes. This sort mm. of big around Melbourne, um, and uh, and and you know some things like the, there's a there was a letterbox that was in the shape of Ned Kelly's helmet, which. Um, I'm not sure if anyone... Oh, that's what that I was. I saw it. I was like, that really reminds me of something. What is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The famous Bush Ranger. Yeah. Um, and, and, also, like, and the cherry ripe chocolate. Oh, cherry like ripe. It was funny because that's the chocolate bar she sends. And uh, like... What I was can the name of that, that sponge cake covered in chocolate sauce? That's Lamington? Lamington. Lamington, yeah. Which has been classic. dipped in desiccated coconut. I was like, got to yeah. check yeah. out that. They, they, they send they each other a lot of different chocolate because that's one of their their, their shared passions. Mm. Yeah, and and the the cherry ripe like the I can I think the ad was like you know you know coconut and cherry wrapped in old gold chocolate or something like I think that's <laughs> the word of the ad. Um, and a complete aside was my mother always put sherry in things that I didn't think oh. um, <laughs> soup. <laughs> like I just. Anyway, so there, there were some things that... Yeah, that Mary's maybe, mother drinks a lot of sherry. Cooking sherry, mm. specifically. Cooking sherry, yeah. She also shoplifts a lot. Yeah, but we'll mm. we'll come to that later. Do we have to come to that later? <laughs> Can we not deal with her now? Well, I've got a whole point around um, how Mary's environment mm. impacts... Well, I mean, her, we're talking think, about Mary's environment, so that's um, quite conducive. We are, but I was actually going to say, given that we've been talking about sort of the aesthetics and the, the 1970s Australian look of the, the piece, at least in the early days... Um, it, how do the colour schemes of their respective environments reflect the two main characters? Because they do have very distinct um, environments in terms of how things are painted. Did you guys want to have a go at that or should we? Uh, well, um, Ma- I'll just I'll describe it for people who won't have seen the film, which is 97% of us. Max lives in New York in, again, the 70s, which was not a great place to be uh, back then. That was like biscuit after the summer of Sam. And um, it's it's very grey and monochromatic, and uh, there's actually there's some very neat crossovers between their worlds. When Mary sends him her letters, they're brown within this otherwise completely monochromatic environment, and the only colour that is used in the film is red, as mentioned. So she mm. sends him a little ha- uh, bobble, which he wears upon his yarmulke, um, and even though he's an atheist, he wears the yarmulke to keep his uh, head warm well he was raised jewish yeah Mm. um and uh and she has a little red hair clip but specifically when she turns up at the end 
this is this might be more to do with the end related stuff. She ha- like she is flesh colored at that point. She's mm. she was effectively um, black and white back in Australia, but then when she comes to America, she's the only person who exhibits a color, out, especially outside of her environment. Mm. Well, her clothes. Are, Mary's world is brown, mm. and Max's mm. world is black and white, and that's kind of the that they are both fairly monochromatic, but mm. that's the. Um, the kind of delineation between the two. And when Mary comes to New York at the end, she brings her brown clothes, her brown hair, her brown Mm. eyes um, with her. And I think the fact that she is, um, that that, there's quite a subtle warmth to her skin tone Mm. that the brown lends it, Mm. that you don't see it when she's in her own environment, but you do see it when she's in Max's very stark black and white environment. And the um, uh, Mary also has um, a mood ring, which mm. is very specifically used to um, explain her current state of mind. And early on in the film, we see a little chart to say what it says the, the mood ring means. And uh, obviously, they're very. If anybody ever had a mood ring or a mood <laughs> necklace when they were a kid, I know I certainly did. Um, the the, ex- <laughs> the explanations that you get are very simplistic, <laughs> and um, generally speaking, these things change colour with the temperature of your skin, which is not Rubbish really related nice. to how you feel. Um, but um, it, it very distinctively uh, goes grey when Mary is bored, black when she is sad, or, or when something. Very negative has happened. Um, there is um, um, oh, Alex has just handed me the um, the actual uh, interpretations of it. So according to this, grey is pensive, ambitious, or hungry. Uh, like I said, in Mary's case, it seems to um, correspond with being bored. Uh, black is angry, startled, or wet, <laughs> and it comes in when she's when she's sad or upset. Blue, which I don't think it we ever see, blue. no, is apparently moody, sad, or itchy. And she gets moody and sad a lot. All the time, and it doesn't go blue. <laughs> it mostly goes black. So this is a defective ring. Indeed. Um, and then there is red, which is described as sexy, horny, or dizzy. It goes red um, a lot, and usually when she's happy. Yeah, I was going to say, the, <laughs> the, the presence of red... That I picked up on, and this includes the red to reflect uh, the red of the ring to reflect Mary's mood, and it comes through in in things like her hair clip. Which, by the way, her hair clip changes colour as well. When she's really low, that hair clip goes black. Right. Only happens a couple of times, but I I caught so it. So it's a secret mood hair clip. Indeed. Um, <laughs> the pom pom that she sends Max that he puts on his hat, um, and red comes through in things like people's tongues, cigarette butts, uh, cigarette butts when like they're on fire, um, lips when people are wearing lipstick, um, and and things like that. Which and it's also it's not specifically coded as good or bad. The the lipstick is uh, attached to a particular woman who. From the looks of it, while they were in a lift together, kissed Max all over his face without asking. Which he did not appreciate in the slightest. Well, it's more than that. That caused him to have an anxiety attack. That, Absolutely. That's, that's part of his sexual hang-ups. He, he was effectively, you know, left in a very Freaked compromised well, position. Yeah, that was my British gift for understatement. Yeah, but, <laughs> but let's be very specific, because I suspect we have a lot of Aspie listeners. Well, possibly so, yeah. Um, um, and... Um, 
the other element of the, of the lipstick red is when uh, Mary's teacher tells her she should, should smile more and her mother, mm. in response to this, draws a big clown smile on her mm. in lipstick, which obviously causes Mary even more distress. So, so that means that lipstick is kind of a... Well, okay. Because it's a little bit of like, if danger we, of... If we take red to mean communication... Because the post office box. Is it's red, the post right? office mm. box. It's mouths and tongues. It's uh, exchanged in little um, items that Mary and Max um, send to each other. Mm. Um, and Mary's ring goes red usually when she is happy because she is talking to Max because she's mm. sharing something. Yes, there are positive elements to it, but it's in the neutral sense. It seems to be about communication. There's but, also, as a side note, you you asked about music. Mm. Uh, there's a specific tune that plays on the piano, which plays whenever Mary is suddenly revitalised by a letter. It's, it always plays after Max has sent her a letter that gets her thinking and moving, except at one point when she gets the birthmark removed and feels like she's made herself, mm. you know, happy in that yeah. scenario. Yeah, it's like a motivating yeah. riff Piece for Mary. To, to go back to the idea of communication, the lipstick in the two particular examples that we get is like fake communication hmm. or communication that doesn't mean what you would think it means. Does that make hmm. sense? Hmm. Yeah, a subtle cue that's difficult to understand. Yeah, particularly for Max. Hmm. Or specifically Mary a facial being, cue. Yeah, Mary being asked to present a facial cue that she doesn't feel. And that actually, mm. there's a, a correspondence there with something that Max says, which I think is... Oh, Mary's red shoes. Yes. Which she mm. uses to communicate that she's got higher self-esteem. When she's, as she starts to get older, yeah, she chooses red shoes to, And then they um, fall off her when she drops into depression. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So the, the, there's, there's the communication element of it there. Um, but yeah, red does seem to be sort of happy and positive and, and um, when, it's, when it's authentic. Mm. When it's fake, it's not. But when it's authentic, it's... Um, Speaking of authenticity, uh, this film um, comes from very much from the heart from Adam Elliott. Again, if you watch this and uh, Harvey Crumpet back to back, uh, he seems to have a lot to say about people living specifically with Max's uh, condition or a variation of Max's condition. Uh, and Max is based on uh, Adam's real-life pen pal who has uh, Asperger's and who isn't dead. And effectively, he's positioned himself as Mary in this particular uh, film. And uh, you know, a lot of the anecdotal stuff regarding Max is, is based on this real-life uh, pen pal, mm. which gives it that sense of authenticity. But obviously, the film itself should be judged as this is one person's condition. This is mm. not all people with uh, Asperger's. Absolutely. Yeah. Just as a final thought on that, that colour thing I was thinking about was... You know, black and white's very literal, like just to return to my first oh. point. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, that brown, there's, there's, there's a, like, it's, it's like she lives in a world of colour, but it's not very colourful. She's, she's depressed, you know, she's unhappy, um, but it's like it's a little bit more um, emotionally rich, uh, but 
it's impoverished, I guess, to other people's emotional world. Whereas he, um, Max's world is very sort of black and white, very strict. Mm. And, you know, and, and, and I mean, that was sort of one way I think I had sort of thought about the color scheme, but I guess I hadn't really sort of picked it up until we started talking about it. Sort of like, you know, when you watch The Matrix. And yeah. Mm. <laughs> the discussion well, engenders the uh, the philosophy. <laughs> now, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think you're spot on there with Max's world being black and white and Max seeing the world in a very black and white, literal way. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it, some of the things that he says really underline that. I don't understand why people break laws. I don't like lies. He has very specific lines about what is... Uh, what makes sense to him and what doesn't and he says he interprets mm. the world in a very literal and logical way and when the world doesn't behave literally and logically which is often it mm. upsets him and he doesn't understand what's going on um and the the shades of brown that mary is surrounded by and engages with brown is what happens when you throw all colors into a pot Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, there are varying shades of it, but it is she lives in a world where all the emotions and all the experiences are all mixed in together and the difficulty for her, exactly, it's chaotic and the, the difficulty for Mary, especially given that she starts the film so young, is to, um, to, to work out how to separate all of that out. And, and I think... This just, I'll, I'll talk about this very briefly, but I, I want to talk about Mary in a bit more depth later on. Um, Mary's main um, mental condition that I think, I don't know if she ever actually receives a, a formal diagnosis of it, but depression is, is the, the overriding thing that Mary is dealing with, I would say, even mm. from a fairly young age. Um, but I've, I've experienced... Uh, depression myself and one of the hardest things about getting through it for me was that sense that all the emotions I'm feeling have been mixed in together and it is nigh on impossible to pick out the elements that need to be dealt with and processed and it just becomes Mm. very overwhelming and that's why I end up sitting there in a pile going I can't do anything because it's all a mess and I don't know what to pick out first Mm. Um, and I think that that muddy brown that she specifically refers to her eyes are muddy brown she sees the world through a muddy filter yeah, um, and I, I think that feeds into what then becomes this uh, this suicidal depression by the end of her, um, or but you know close to the the end of her story. Yeah, and I think what you sort of say there, Sharon, is is leads very much into if you were going to have a discussion around psychological therapy and how it works. A lot of people say, you know. Um, say to both Amy and I, like you just talk to your clients or, you know, is just listening to them. Or if you work with a student who's you know, training, you sort of say, you know, you need to repeat back and you need to tell them what's going on. And the students are like, I want to do this intervention. You're like, nope, you don't need to do that. You mm-hmm. just need to engage and talk and repeat back. And the value of telling, reflecting back what someone is saying and explaining it to them in in succinct terms mm. is helps to clear up that brown uh, brown mess yeah. that you're talking there's about. There's a um there's a lovely cartoon that is a depiction of therapy and it's there's a speech bubble coming from the client and it's a whole bunch of different wool of all different colours all jumbled together in a mess. Uh, it's kind of filling every possible part of, of the bubble. And then 
the therapist's speech bubble on the other side is each one of those colours rolled into a ball and separated and and sort of, um, yeah, tidied and defined. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's that kind of feeling of like most of the time when people come to see us, you know, we often get stuff about, you know, I don't know how to fix things. I don't know exactly what's wrong, but I know that it's it's not right and I'm overwhelmed and I just can't figure out where to go next. Mm, absolutely. Um, it's, yeah. yeah, it applies a, like across the board to a whole bunch of different issues. Mm. And that, I think, I mean, my view on therapy is, is very particular because the the therapy I'm trained in is is person-centered counseling which is exactly that it's the Mm. you're sitting on your hands going resist the urge to get involved and and to (laughs) to you know give advice or make suggestions the purpose of this is to give the client space to work out for themselves what's going on you're there Mm. to facilitate that um and it's I mean you know, no, that doesn't fix everything, but it, I find that is like a really solid underpinning of where to start with a lot of mm. things. Because then as you get more specific and you work out, well, okay, this particular thing is because of a, a, a trauma I've experienced. Okay, we'll look for a trauma therapy then and resolve that. This is because mm. there's actually a physical issue going on that I need to get dealt with. Okay, let's go to the doctor and get that one sorted out. But having that space to talk about it and and filter which colours are in there mm. is for a lot of people something that they just don't have in their everyday life. They don't have space, they don't have time, and and that's what they need. Yeah, and often and they've never had it. Mm. Like at, at no point in their life have they had someone to kind of just sit there and listen to what's what's going on and, and help them to do that sorting. Yeah. Like, you know, a, a lot of the time when we talk to friends or family or things like that, out of a desire to make things better, people jump to the fixing. Mm-hmm. And so it's often a really rare thing and people often feel quite uncomfortable doing it at the start of therapy because it's kind of like, oh, but but I'm waffling. I should be talking about such and such. Yeah. Um, there's kind of it, it takes a bit of a bit of time to get used to that thing of actually we can work our way through it through talking. Absolutely. Right, okay, so to go into these two uh, central characters in more depth, uh, do you want to start with Max or Mary, or don't you mind? I think we've talked a lot about um, Mary, but there's a lot of specificity, a lot of things that Max just actively lists for us Mm. that Mm. inform on his view on the world. And I feel like this film would actually be really useful for just regular people to sit down and go, okay. So, like, because he's just listing, this is how I feel. And by the way, Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance is chameleonic. I didn't know until I got to the I think I'd completely forgotten that he was uh, in it. But it doesn't sound like him. And he completely embodies this character. He was such a loss to us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, because Max is so matter-of-fact in the way he deals with Mary and, t- and tells her... Like, he, he explains straight up you know this is how i see the world and like you know if we, if we can look back over a lot of those things because again most people won't have seen this mm. so it you know it will help 
the listeners to to understand Max himself if we talk about these things. Okay, right. So what I thought might be useful for framing how we examine Max, um, because he states very specifically, um, uh, maybe about two thirds of the way through the film, that he has actually been diagnosed with Asperger's. Um, mm. The uh, the diagnostic uh, sorry the diagnosis for what used to be called Asperger's, what has now been folded into um, autism spectrum disorder. Mm-hmm. which is a range of uh, profiles of traits and characteristics that are not defined as autistic because they the, there's a you know in in some functioning areas the person might seem fine but mm. there are other functioning areas where they are impaired in some way and they, they have deficits in some way. So they folded a number of things into autism spectrum disorder and, and Asperger's is one of them. The diagnosis is a bit different in every country. Um, and in the UK, the tools and criteria are based on, if not identical to, the uh, DSM manual which they use in america that's the diagnostic Mm. and statistical manual of mental disorders which is currently on version five and given that autism spectrum disorder manifests in many varied ways how does the film show through his behavior language or explanations of his perceptions how max meets the uh, autism spectrum disorder criteria so I know that sounds a little This is chaotic and complicated. I do not understand. <laughs> do you know what? I think Max would probably understand that better than the average person. <laughs> how does, how does yeah. he fit with the Asperger's? Exactly. So I've, I've got... I've, criteria? Yeah, I've uh, got kind of yeah. a basic breakdown of how the DSM defines autism spectrum disorder. Um, So what I thought might be helpful is if we go through them point by point, I'll give the criteria. um, And then if uh, Hunter and Amy, I thought it might be quite helpful if you could then translate that in a way that Mm -hmm. makes more sense to the average person. (laughs) Um, And then we can look at examples of how Max behaves, things he says, ways he sees the world that fit with that that point of criteria. Mm -hmm. Does that... Makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Right. Okay. So the first, um, the first section is um, that the person must have persistent deficits in social communication and interaction across multiple contexts. Which that basically means it's got to happen in like school and work Mm. and at home and with friends. Doesn't have to be all contexts. There can be some in which you you're okay, um, but it has to be more than one so that we know that it's not specific to that that context um and there are three elements that the person has to have uh, deficits in and they must all be met for this this to be the thing that's in question so the first one is social emotional reciprocity Re- reciprocity I can't say reciprocity thank you darling <laughs> um so so could you amy and hunter please tell us what social yeah. emotional reciprocity means sure 
so the basic idea about that is that when we have interactions with other people, there's a bunch of internalized non you know, non-spoken rules about how things should go. So, you know, in, in each culture, there'll be things about how far away it's okay to stand from someone when you're speaking to them, about eye contact, things like that. We tend to think that that's just how everybody is, but actually it's pretty culturally dependent. And so someone with autism will have trouble with those kind of things. So you might find that uh, they approach too closely to be comfortable and don't pick up when people pull back or try and make some more space. They might have trouble holding eye contact or might stare. It also includes stuff like uh, sharing how you feel, picking up on other people's emotions and then responding to that. So it's the kind of in-between interactive part of emotions mm. and of social behaviour. Yeah, and as you yeah. as you pointed out there, Amy, it can be very culturally dependent. And I think the mm. this is why it can get a little bit hazy, especially when you've got overlaps between different countries and different cultures, because there is no fundamentally definitive, this is the right way to behave with people and this is the wrong way to behave with people. Where it's considered to be impaired or um, deficient is when people are struggling with learning from observation of the people around them what's okay and what's not does that exactly yes yeah. okay yeah and that of course then has a flow-on effect to their social interactions so yeah. things just are a bit clunky and don't mm. don't quite run as smoothly as it might do with someone who doesn't have difficulties in this area absolutely and some people learn to fake it very well yeah um, particularly and, girls yeah it's it's yeah. um yeah, the sort of social development of, of girls means that often it's not picked up until later because this one in particular, they're really good at uh, sort of mirroring. Yeah. 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 They can learn how to mimic and have you know, structured ways of doing social interactions so that people don't pick up that they can't do social interactions. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so what does Max exhibit then um, which suggests a deficit in this area for him? Um, I've, I've got a couple, but if you want to go ahead and, and give any that you observed and then I'll add any that don't get mentioned. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I, I mean, I, I think the thing that comes to mind is the, the elevator scene that we were talking about before, but I'm not sure that's the greatest example. Uh, Amy? Um, hmm, I'm thinking about how he struggles to communicate with his neighbor mm-hmm. yeah. um with Ivy. you know to sort of yeah yeah he struggles to set boundaries or to kind of regulate that relationship a little bit mm. um i think some of his back and forth conversation with mary has an aspect of this you know it doesn't um he responds to her question and then sometimes he'll go off on a tangent and describe stuff that's important to him right at that moment Whereas if they're actually talking, that might not be the case. Mm. It might it might be that she loses interest or switches the conversation in a different direction. But it's sort of like he's he's following his own train of thought. What did you have on your list? What what have you got, Alex? Anything that that folds in with this or for that for the, specifically the social cues side mm. of things? Yeah, <clears throat> he does a lot of sitting out in public and uh, and, and sort of shares benches with people who sort of regard him 
you know, off the way that mm. we would regard you know, a stranger sitting near us. And it seems like he's uneasy because he's not sure what he's supposed to do in that scenario. Mm. And usually that other person will annoy him by doing something like smoking or littering. He specifically hates littering because it's nonsensical. Why would you litter? And uh, it feels like he's mystified and intimidated by other people's behavior Mm. when Mm. he's out in public. So he spends most of his time inside. uh, Mary's neighbor across the street is agoraphobic. She originally says he's homophobic. um, (laughs) And she updates that later when she starts to do uh, to study. But um, it, it feels like... Uh, Max has has got quite a bit of agoraphobia too because he can control his environment if he's inside and minimise social interactions. Mm. Yeah, Mm. Yeah. it's worth mentioning at this point, I think, that there are a lot of uh, behaviours that fall under the autism spectrum disorder category that are frequently misinterpreted as things like agoraphobia obsessive compulsive Mm. disorder Mm. things like that because people see the solutions manifest themselves as other disorders or seem exactly and and if someone is looking at that person through a very narrow filter and only seeing the fact that they don't like to go out or only seeing the fact that they like to line things up in order Mm. then that's what they pick up on and and think Mm. it's that one thing when Mm. in actual fact you need a more whole picture to understand that it all feeds into this this one uh, overarching explanation. Yeah, um, that's a problem that uh, happens across all psychiatric disorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, as a clinician, uh, you would be surprised. You would read the DSM, and you'd think, "Oh, you know, I'd definitely be able to pick a problem, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder from depression." Mm-hmm. But um, it can be really hard sometimes, and because, like you sort of say, it, it manifests in a particular way. But if you don't sort of understand all of it, then you'll think, oh, it's this thing, not that thing. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, he, and he really struggles with, with it, non-verbal communication behaviours, right? Which mm. is actually the next criteria on the list. So we can fold that one into the, the social reciprocity as well. Mm. Yeah, he really struggle. He seems to really sort of struggle with that, uh, kind of picking, you know, what people are wanting or, you know, he sort of seems to pick it up over over time mm. i'm sort of thinking about that interaction with uh the the is it the homeless uh, chap mm. that's out the front and he kind of goes oh hang on that person looks scared mm. uh after, you know mm. up so the the first kind of issue that he had with him but, but he also you know, in his response to him then goes back and looks at his he's got a book of emotions and practices in front of the mirror about how to make a face that matches to happy mm-hmm. um, for when he interacts with him him again so it's kind of um, it's applying that template rather than a um, organic kind of response it bothers him if that, that makes he sense. can't smile. Uh, and mm. especially he, the, the words he uses that were that even if my face isn't smiling, my brain may be smiling on the inside, mm. and yeah. that it often does. He also laments that he can't cry. He's, yeah. he's for emotional reasons. Yeah, we know he's teared up to work because he says it cry, he cries when he cuts onions. Yeah, but yeah. That, but that doesn't count. Mm. And um, Mary does something extremely uh, sweet, which is to uh, take a, a bottle of hemorrhoid syrup, empty it out, <laughs> hopefully wash it, and then. Um, Think about uh, sad things and cry into the bottle to then send him uh, uh, with an eyedropper Max's tears. Mm. 
Yeah, and it's something that that I hear in my work a fair bit. Those those things. So I, you know, I hear from young people who are quite um, unsettled that say their family members are crying about the death of a family member, but they can't seem to cry. Um, or people who are having real trouble at school and having people who think that they're uh, scary or angry all of the time. And it's that their facial expression, you know, from an outsider, it does does look like that, but that's not the emotion that they're feeling on the inside and it just hasn't been communicated forward onto their, onto their expression. Mm. Um, and so then it ends up with them being treated as, you know, a bully or... Um, you know, intimidating when actually they just haven't realised that they're not smiling or not responding in that way. Yeah. The other yeah. thing it's it's probably worth mentioning at this point is um, it's really, really, really hard for neurotypical people to understand each other sometimes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> because, like, the average person sometimes struggles to um, to communicate how they're feeling inside non-verbally or or even with words. And um, a lot of the, the traits that are listed for, um, for neuroatypicalities like autism, like um, ADHD, uh, you know, various conditions that come under this umbrella, they are human traits. The issue is mm. that they are taken to an extreme and that they are, um, they're, they're at the ends of, the spectrum of what constitutes usual. Mm. Dear Mary Daisy Dinkle, thank you for the letter, which I opened and read at 9.17pm after my Overeaters Anonymous class. Unfortunately, in America, babies are not found in cola cans. I asked my mother when I was four, and she said they came from eggs laid by rabbis. If you aren't Jewish, they're laid by Catholic nuns. When I was born, my father left my mother and me on a kibbutz. She shot herself with my uncle's gun when I was six. Do you like chocolate hot dogs? I invented the recipe for them and can send it to you. New York is a very busy and noisy place. I would prefer to live somewhere much quieter. Like the moon. I don't like crowds. Bright lights, sudden noises, or strong smells. New York has all these. Especially the smells. I often wear nose and earplugs when I go outside. It helps keep me calm. I find humans interesting, but I have trouble understanding them. I think, however, I will understand and trust you. Right back soon. Your American friend, Max Jerry Horowitz. P.S. Please find and close the photo from one of those booths. P.P.S. Thank you for the cherry ripe. And I am glad you like chocolate as much as I do. I have never eaten sweetened condensed milk, but I will try some this week. The, the word um, alexithymia, which is the not having a vocabulary to describe your emotional experience, mm. in Asperger's and in autism uh, or ASD, um, that you know they essentially just don't have a language for their worries, particularly for you know particularly if these emotions are subtle or they're complex emotions, you know. So if you 
ask them how you how they're feeling, they might say, "Look, I, I don't know." But really, what they're communicating or they're what's going on is that they don't know how to identify this complex thing that's an emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. they you know, if you think about how complex what an emotion is, and if you, you think about trying to educate your you know children around that, and then and then you have to express it and and communicate that in a way that someone else will understand. That's actually quite a complicated process. Mm. I mean, it's very much part of and, being human. But, uh, and yeah. especially when you find uh, complexity and murkiness anxiety-provoking. Um, so, you know, there might not be a set answer about how someone feels or what they're trying to communicate to you. Mm. And so it's not like you can... Uh, scramble around and find the right answer all of the time so it's kind of it often gets waylaid a bit with anxiety and with worrying about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing Mm. when actually there isn't a right thing absolutely (laughs) it's just that people who are more neurologically atypical uh, have varying degrees of comfort with the fact that they might be getting it wrong yeah and that it might be murky Indeed. And Max has very specific language about how he speaks about his emotions. I actually feel that Max is astoundingly um, literate about how he Mm. describes his emotions. And this is something that that comes with time. It's possible that all the work he's doing with a psychiatrist is, is teaching him this as the film progresses. But some of the ways that he defines um, what he's feeling so he he explicitly says at one point that he feels love so he recognizes that he feels it but he can't articulate it mm. um, and he he has what I think is to date the best expression of anxiety that I have ever heard which is <laughs> the emotions inside my brain felt like they were in a tumble dryer smashing into each other that mm. man that is bang on thank <laughs> you Max <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> Yeah, um, and and I do. I wonder if part of the um, the this inability to kind of separate out and, and define emotions, it's it's often interpreted from the outside as you don't feel, or you mm. don't you don't feel them the same way as everybody else does. But the it it seems to me, and this is from from observation of um, something similar that happens in in ADHD, which I do have, which I am diagnosed with, which is that the emotions that you're feeling are more. They're more mm. intense. They're more spread out. They overlap with each other more than they do in people who are neurotypical, and so it becomes more difficult to separate them out and explain them and and give voice to them. Mm, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that that leads into the the third must have criteria, uh, which I think we've probably pretty much covered. But obviously, if anybody wants to add anything else to to outline this, um, deficits in developing, maintaining, and understand relationships. And with everything that we've mm. said about how hard it is to uh, interpret your own emotions, to express them in a way that other people will understand, to uh, grasp what other people are feeling when the visual information that you're getting doesn't always connect in the same way as it mm. does with other people. You can see it would be really, really logical that that's going to cause problems with how you interact with other people. Yeah, and I think probably the only other, like the relevant thing to add in about Max is that his one friend prior to Mary is an imaginary friend. Mm. Um, And, you know, he is trying to 
to have a friendship and to have have relationships he desperately wants them and this this criteria doesn't mean that you're not interested in them mm. um it, I mean, he it says means he's really interested in people he just has yeah. difficulty understanding them. one of the reasons he, he likes quite work. he likes the noblets the smurf thingies uh because they have a, a very structured life which he finds relaxing mm. and also that they have loads and loads of friends he wants yeah. loads of friends yeah. Yeah. The other element yeah, exactly. of the noblets that I think appeals to him is the fact that they all have labels. Their names mm. say what they're feeling, <laughs> what, they what their dimensions are. It, yeah. it makes them much easier to understand than people whose names don't mean anything like that, which is <laughs> well, I was gonna which say, is useless. Uh, yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. The, the classic thing was actually mentioned in one of my texts. There's uh, autistic kids um, frequently really love um, Tom's Tank Engine mm. because... The all the tank, you know, all the engines, uh, their emotions are stated and talked about and described very, again. Very clearly. and pretty static. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they have very distinctive faces on something that isn't normally meant to have a face, and therefore mm. you're automatically paying more attention to it than you would to the sea of human faces that surrounds you every day. And it explains mm. little human interactions with a, an overview. Yeah, and you can pick up mm-hmm. on things like the different colours, um, although that does make it hard to tell, um, like Percy and Edward apart. But you know. <laughs> it just made one train yellow. I think one's small. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one's not. That's okay. how you know between those two. Um, but, okay, so so moving on to the next category, um, it's it's this is four elements that the person only needs to display two of, but Max displays all four to, to varying mm. degrees. So um, it's defined as restricted, repetitive behaviour, interests, or activities in two of the following. Repetitive motor movements, use of objects, or speech. So we've already talk, mm-hmm. talked about collecting the noblets, which is use of objects. Um, yeah. Is there anything else that Max does with movements, objects, or speech that's repetitive? Yeah. Um, I, I had fewer of these. So. I think um, when he's having meltdowns, he does uh, what's called stimming, which is uh, it's repetitive behaviour. It's often things like... Um, flapping or rubbing one particular part of your body or it's it stands for self-stimulating and we all have an aspect of that like we've all had a time when we've been um, upset about something and rubbed our own arm for example um, but Max when he's um, distressed he'll sort of pull on his face repeatedly and that's quite a quite a common um, stimming activity uh, so I noticed that one well. he when he has a full yeah, anxiety exactly. attack he stands on a little yeah. stool rocks mm-hmm. back and forth holds his face and it's yeah. illustrated in the animation where he's got these two little ties for his tracksuit bottoms that flap backwards and forwards to yeah. accentuate his mm-hmm. rocking yeah exactly yeah so that one I definitely definitely noticed yeah. there was also the saving of the toenails yeah <laughs> And saving of the flies that he catches the, to feed his many fish. The flies, yes, but the flies have a practical application. <laughs> so while I do agree that that falls under this category, he at least has a reason for it that the average person just glancing at it wouldn't immediately go, okay, that's a, a repetitive collective object, but he's using them to feed the fish. So, yeah. But the toenails definitely, and that's another one, which if that's all you saw, you might leap to obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. Yeah, and in, in the DSM, they talk about idiosyncratic phrases, and he's and he talks about those, uh, I guess those um, words 
confuzzled. Yeah. Um, yeah, his fascination with, with words from a language perspective, what the word sounds like, what shape mm. your mouth makes when you, you're yeah. saying it. Mm. Um, yeah. Confuzzled and is uh, confused and puzzled, a portmanteau he invented yeah. himself. He's yeah. keen on inventing things. Mm. He is, yeah. He's quite creative. Mm. That's okay. Yeah. If we could just go off on a little tangent, there. One of the uh, aspects I really enjoyed and dug about this film was that, despite all of these um, things that hold him back in life, uh, it goes very much into Max's internal workings in terms of things that he likes, things that he does, and things that uh, his condition actually helps him to achieve, or specifically that he's applying his condition to. Can you speed read? I have taught myself to read two pages at once. One eyeball per page. He invents the chocolate hot dog, which is exactly <laughs> what it sounds like. And uh, he, he's a fan of um, crea- you know, creating things. He likes to solve problems. It doesn't necessarily say, because of his condition, he is Rain Man. Mm. But uh, he specifically... And this also leads uh, up to uh, a point where he fairly early on tells her, I think after he's been diagnosed. Dear Mary Daisy Dinkle, there's something I have to tell you, which will explain why I have not written. Each time I received one of your letters, I had a severe anxiety attack. This is because recently, while I was in a mental institution, they diagnosed that I have a new thing called Asperger's Syndrome, which is a neurobiological pervasive developmental disability. I prefer Aspie for short. I will now list some of the traits of an Aspie. Number one, I find the world very confusing and chaotic because my mind is very literal and logical. Two, I have trouble understanding the expressions on people's faces. When I was younger, I made a book to help me when I was confused. I still have trouble with some people. Three, I have bad handwriting, am hypersensitive, Clumsy. I can get very concerned. Four. I like solving problems. And finally, number five. I have trouble expressing my emotions. Dr. Bernard Hasselhoff says my brain is defective. But one day, there will be a cure for my disability. I do not like it when he says this. I do not feel disabled, defective, or a need to be cured. I like being an Aspie. It may cause him stress, but as far as he's concerned, it's illogical to change this about him. It would be like trying to change the colour of his eyes. Absolutely. Which is in a... This is me, this is the way I am. Yeah, which in a subtle way is uh, uh, juxtaposed against Mary's getting rid of her birthmark, which she points at and says, every time I step in shit, which she does a lot, it's because (laughs) of this goddamn birthmark. And then she Mm. gets rid of it and it doesn't make her happy. Mm. 
And I think that's that's been one of the really difficult things about them getting rid of Asperger's as a diagnosis and folding it into autism is that there's a whole lot of people who really identified with that label and with that sort of idea of being an Aspie. And um, it's felt like a real loss to be folded into this mm. diagnosis, which is seen... Um, by some communities as more severe or um, in a different light to to what Asperger's is. So I think, you know, it's pretty common for people who have been diagnosed with Asperger's to have that that feeling of like, yep, this is, this is who I am and I like this. Mm. I like the way that I am. And it does specifically say in the DSM-5 um, that if people prior to this coming out were already given a, a, a diagnosis of Asperger's and that's what they want to continue to mm. use, then that's fine. Mm. You know, mm. let, let them use yeah. that. This relates tangentially, uh, although I don't specifically want to go into it in ridiculous depth, to the renewed uh, persecution of uh, autistic people, specifically in America, and the anti-vaxxer movement that would effectively, if you put it on paper, rather their child died Mm. of a disease than was diagnosed with autism. Mm. And also on a side note, would be absolutely fine with other people's children also dying of disease. And then yeah. there's 2020. <laughs> but either way, it's specifically, it's, it's, a, it's mental conditions that are seen as worse than death mm. and seen as fit to be erased along with the people living with these conditions mm. by usually uh, extremely frightened, extremely ignorant neurotypical people. Mm. who may Mm. or may not be suffering from some kind of condition themselves that has been undiagnosed and unexplored. And given that (laughs) autism is often very strongly genetic, as are a Mm. lot of neurodivergent conditions, chances are there's something in the family somewhere Mm. that you haven't seen yet. Either way, the fact that Max very specifically says, I do not want to be cured, should have clued Mary into. It should. I mean, to be fair, she wasn't... Don't make him a case study. And if you do, for the love of God, at least... Ask him before you start yeah. writing. Yeah, I, I, uh, like you know, we're we're under lockdown here, so we, we couldn't watch it together, and uh, we were furiously texting each other. <laughs> um, were you watching it at the same time? Yeah, yeah, we were yeah, we, same we, time. We, um, we've been doing and, a lot of the um, 1990s sort of, you know, calling one another and then going ready, set, press, play at the nice. same time. Nice. Movies and things. Old-fashioned yeah. watch parties. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, not the least of which I studied psychology at Melbourne University, um, and so I know firsthand that that ethics department would n- not have let that happen. Oh, nice. um, so, I mean, I know that the <laughs> 80s might have been a different era, mm. uh, um, but yeah, you would you certainly wouldn't be sending a book the first time. I mean, and, mm-hmm. um, and saying, oh, look, by the way, I've analysed you and this is what it is. Your um, picture is on the front cover of the book. Mm. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you were going to actually do it, then you wouldn't, wouldn't you want to, like, actually then, like, write up some stuff and then actually maybe go and interview the chap? Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, if you're going to do a qualitative study, which it would have been. Also, complete other side note, they depict a building in the Melbourne University, which I think is the 1888 building or the 1880 building, which is not the psychology building. Actually. And there's a movie called, Australian movie called Love and Other Catastrophes, mm-hmm. uh, which is set at Melbourne University. And in that, the 
the uh, characters are running between buildings to trying to get uh, a piece of paper signed before five o'clock by all these different lecturers. And it just brought me back to that movie because you watch that and as a Melbourne University student, you're like, this... Like they're running, they're running out of the chemistry building. That's not, that's not the arts building. What's going on? <laughs> you fools! <laughs> completely distracting. Uh, <laughs> but it can really be when you know something is not what they're trying to portray it as. It's just like that doesn't fit with the thing it, that's in my head. <laughs> it's, and, and no one else gets it yet, anyway. No. <laughs> It's very not, not specific. To be, you know, focused on sameness and stereotype things, but yeah. <laughs> Which leads us neatly into the next category. <laughs> Funnily enough. Um, so, yeah. Um, so the, uh, the next element on the list is insistence on sameness, adherence to routines or ritualised patterns in behaviour or speech. Now, we talked briefly about um, Max's creativity when it comes to food. But there is also an element of um, sameness and routine in his approach to food. He is yeah. very specific about the kinds of foods that he wants to eat. He gives himself a, a menu, a routine menu, where he has the same thing on on the same day. every. So he doesn't eat the same thing every day, which some people who are um, diagnosed autistic prefer to do or you know need to do for for their own um sense of safety um but he does have set meals on set days now again a lot of people have routines and menus Mm. the crucial element for max is how um it causes him a degree of discomfort um and distress if any of these things are disrupted and in particularly when it results in um, he refers to a lack of symmetry when one of his fish dies um, mm. and um, the with the foods I, I really liked the fact actually that he has this very specific outlined menu throughout the week but then I think it's Saturday he gives himself the freedom to be creative and that's the day <laughs> he's allowed to put tin spaghetti in a burger or <laughs> anything else that springs to mind you see him having a fair bit of, you know, you see him in the same kind of clothes and going to the same, um, you know, overeaters meeting and, and there's kind of, there's ritual throughout his day. What I was curious about was that, you know, he gradually starts trying the things that Mary sends him. Um, you know, there are some things that he doesn't try, like he doesn't try condensed milk for quite a while, mm. but there are other things where if it's sort of close enough to what he likes, he's willing to give it a go, Mm -hmm. which, as you say, some people who have been diagnosed with autism wouldn't uh, be up for that. That would be too scary Mm -hmm. to try something new or different, even if it was kind of related to what they like. Yeah, I think as well there's an element of um, it being a bit safer to try things that Mary suggests because, A, she sent it to him, so it's there. He doesn't have to Mm. go out and, and obtain it. Um, B, it's uh, she's not there, which means that mm. if his reaction to it is negative, it's not going to upset her because she's not right there observing the fact that he doesn't like the thing that she's suggested that mm. he try. So I think that, that there is that distance in their relationship through the, the fact that they're writing to each other and they live countries apart. That facilitates Max to um, expand his boundaries a little bit. Um, mm. In a way that, if this was, if it was his neighbour, he wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, 
and I mean, he has rituals in other things as well. Like I'm even thinking about how he develops a ritual around when he receives one of Mary's letters that mm. he irons it and laminates it and yeah. all of those kind of things and files it. And there's a know, neat there's visual a moment in the film where uh, it says, and then he filed it away, and Max looks upwards, which mm. pays off. Mm. We end. don't see. We it don't until see the, the that the yeah. ceiling's covered in these uh, letters, yeah. but it's a nice little seeding of that particular aspect. Yeah. Continue, sorry. Mm. And it, and like sort of what you're saying, Sharon, around some of these routines are common. Like, so he has the same, he has the same lotto numbers, right? And then many people would have the same lucky numbers, quote unquote. Mm. And and then, but you know, he sticks to it, and um, for him, pays off, uh, which is fortunate. And then he and then he does, he buys all the chocolate because he's like, well, I've you know, I want I want to have a lifetime's worth of chocolate. Now I've I've got that sort. <laughs> You know, yep. it all makes sense on that sort of internal logic, if you follow mm. it. Loaded up with bizarre forms of chocolate, their letters flew thick and fast between the continents. Max learned to read Mary's letters with caution, and at the slightest tingle of tension, he would stop, take his medication and soothe his nerves. Each letter he would iron, laminate and file in a special place which also soothed his nerves. He enjoyed answering her questions and solving her puzzles, like, do sheep shrink when it rains? Why do old men wear their pants so high? Do gooses get goosebumps? And why is belly button lint blue? Are there noblets in heaven? And if a taxi goes backwards, does the driver owe you money? In turn, Mary simply enjoyed hearing about Max's fascinating life. Each nourished the other, and as Mary grew taller, Max grew wider, their friendship becoming stronger than the glue on Mary's noblets. Although Max found solace in Mary, he still found the rest of the world bewildering and he couldn't understand why he was seen as the odd one while everyone else was considered normal. Humans were endlessly illogical. Why did they throw out food when there were children starving in India? Why did they clear the rainforests when they needed the oxygen? And why did they create bus timetables when they never ran on time? He agreed with his favorite physicist that there are only two things infinite, the universe and man's stupidity. So the, the next one for Max is uh, restricted fixated interests that are abnormal in intensity or focus. I didn't have much on this one. Um, the only thing I picked up on was the being a member of the New York Science Fiction Club, um, which mm. science fiction is a is obviously a very popular interest for an awful lot of people, but it is a very <laughs> popular interest for people who are um, autistic and uh, and particularly who have Asperger's diagnoses. I, I suspect probably because there's a lot of literal and logical um, mm. frameworks to it that um, is comforting. 
And possibly for the same reason that we particularly relish sci-fi for its drama, mm. because its drama is usually folded into the story. So the story is about something bigger mm. with human drama involved. Yeah. So it's kind so of a safe you... version of them seeing drama yeah. where they can kind of leave the drama if they want to. Absolutely. And it gives mm. you clues into why people might feel the way they do because they're talking about so it. So a grown-up version of Thomas the Tank mm. Engine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. Which um, is Transformers. Yes, <laughs> Um, also, this is this is specifically a cultural thing, but he says about um, being asked if he's a member of the Communist Party, which he forgets until they've gone, that he was once a communist. I suspect mm. that has something to do with being um, living on a kibbutz when he was um, mm. younger. Mm. Um, but that kind of highlights that cultural difference. That could be, um, from a, a, a United States perspective, that could be argued to be an abnormal interest um, mm. but for Max who might have been exposed to that culturally through his childhood um, that's it's not particularly abnormal and that's that's one of those things that really has that it depends thing over probably it. um the interest in the noblets would might fit in this in terms of that yes. it's a kids tv show mm. and so it would be appropriate for Mary to be completely into it and wanting to collect all of the figurines mm. but it's probably more unusual for a man in his 40s to yeah. be collecting things from a kids tv show and for that to be his primary interest mm. yes we have no yeah. experience with that at all in this house do we <laughs> vintage star wars collection transformers no but that's fished at adults it's fine <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, right, this is one that's that's only really been picked up on in terms of autism spectrum disorder fairly recently, um, and that, or at least as far as I'm aware, please, guys, correct me if I am mm. off the mark with this one. Um, but hypo or hyperreactivity to sensory input or unusual interest in sensory aspects of the environment. Now, this is um, mm. sort of, I suppose the most logical and easily explainable element of autism, mm. um, which is uh, uh, sensory input is either it doesn't work the way it does for quote-unquote normal people or it works way too much. So seeing things, everything is too bright, you can't filter sounds mm. everything is too loud you can't hone in on the thing that you want to listen to and filter out the things that are irrelevant smells overwhelming incredibly strong tastes and this is often why people prefer to keep what they eat within a a, a um, a narrow framework because if they have a new taste or a new texture in their mouth it's incredibly overwhelming for them mm. um, so um, with with Max for this he says at one point there's not a lot of this but he does say that he is overwhelmed by the noise of New York the bright lights sudden noises and strong smells particularly the smells mm. yeah and also like touch and and then like um, like I had a colleague who who's talked about sort of recognizing that you know he had elements of autism stuff and he started wearing like instead of suits and stuff but like much softer clothes mm. and, and and that was less stimulating so yeah it's like across all the five senses like mm. you talked about Sharon, I mean, and clothes it, is a pretty common one as well like in kids often one of the first indicators for for kids who perhaps are more at the um Asperger's end of the the spectrum. Often, a complaint from parents is they won't 
wear any other clothes than this specific jumper or they won't let me throw out this jumper even though it's far too small for them now and often it is that textural thing there's something about that jumper that that feels right Mm. and some of our work is you know let's get to the point where we can all go to the shops together and you can feel a bunch of different jumpers and see which one feels right Mm. so it's yeah it's quite intense and max i think he he has a very stark apartment and you know like i mean there could be various reasons for that but i mean i was certainly drawn to the fact that that was probably a low stimulus environment uh was sort of i guess my sort of interpretation of it i wonder Um, about his eating as well with this one yeah Um, in terms of yeah how much feedback he gets gets from food Mm. um, whether that's why he needs to overeat well chocolate in particular is something that provides um specific chemical reactions Mm. that that Mm. cause stimulation in the brain and um often um the the stimming thing is a way of i'm being overwhelmed by uh, sensory stimulus that I can't control. If I do something that I can control, it will help me focus on that one thing, and that will make mm. everything else not quite so bad. Um, yeah. And I, I think he definitely does that. Um, mm. So yeah. So I mean, it's it's clear from Max's story that he um, that this is all stuff that that started in his childhood, albeit that it may not have been recognised until later in life, which is one of the elements of, of autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. He hasn't grown out of it, although he has used uh, learned to use adaptive strategies um, to to get him around things Um, and it does cause him uh, what's described as clinically significant impairment in social occupational or other areas of functioning and we see that in his meltdowns we see it in the fact that he's had a string of jobs that he's been unable to sustain Um, Mm. he hasn't got relationships although he or or not many relationships although um, as as Alex pointed out his interest in the noblets being partly because they have lots of friends does indicate that he wants those relationships. Some people are fine mm. without them, and, and that's absolutely mm. okay. But Max does want to be able to interact with people, but he finds it very, very difficult. Yeah. Okay, so that's a lot we've said about Max. Let's have a chat about Mary. Dear Max, I have been such an idiot. I've wasted all my money on something pointless when I should have been saving to see you. I know love upsets you, so I won't go on about it. All I want to say is that love is obviously not for me. I hope you are well and enjoy the chocolate cigarettes I've enclosed. Love, Mary. Mm -hmm. So um, my question for Mary was, how might her interactions with her family and community have contributed to her outlook and her mental health Uh, both detrimentally, which there's a lot of, and protectively, if you've seen any elements of that as well. Mm. Um, And I I want to go to kind of the tail end of Mary's story first and get the big one out of the way, um, which is what becomes this suicidal depression um, and how the expression of that, because it's not just Mary who hits that point, um, but how is that handled in the film? Amy, Amy, you had a quite a strong reaction to the depiction of the suicide. I did, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so I used to work in suicide prevention, mm-hmm. and one of the the big parts of suicide prevention these days is around media depictions of suicide and about the impact of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that we know is that showing a method on on screen can have some really uh, 
detrimental consequences to people who are watching who perhaps might already be in that state. So, for example, uh, when 13 Reasons Why was released, there was a, a bunch of teenagers in the States who didn't know one another but who had watched the show who all attempted or completed suicide using the same method that was in the show and leaving tapes like what happens in the show. Mm. And whenever there's a celebrity uh, who... Uh, dies by suicide if that method is publicized we see an uptick in that particular method so my my gut reaction always upon seeing that is kind of it's a mixture of the basic sort of you know human empathy towards someone in that state and then my suicide prevention brain kicking up and going oh do we have to see exactly how she's going to do this um yeah which i think was a bit different to hunter's reaction okay yeah i think i I was just a bit, I was just like, oh, God, I don't want this to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, which uh, yeah. is obviously that the film is not geared towards uh, mental health professionals. So that's no. the no. the aim that they're going for is is evoking compassion and empathy. And I, I do mm. think that that is successful. I think mm. it was very intense. Yeah. yeah it's I, confronting. I, I was surprised at. I was watching this film and I was surprised at a couple of moments of just the intensity of my emotional reaction, the, the, the suicide scene, but also like, the, you know, the, the right at the end of the film where they, and I was really annoyed that we didn't get the reunion and I, and I didn't think I was. Union, uh, not even reunion. They'd never met. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You, All they yeah, wanted exactly. was to meet and share a, uh, a tin of condensed milk. Uh, Max even like writes a notes, uh, a letter speculating that someday their paths might cross. Mm. It actually yeah. felt cruel, especially the yeah. second time watching this yeah. ending and knowing, especially your pen friend's still alive. You've deliberately engineered this ending to make it mm. more bittersweet. It's more memorable, but it felt cruel. Oh uh, yeah, and and so I think yeah, it was it was quite powerful. I mean, you really, I really felt the slide of this 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 woman who, I mean, and you know, I've I've done a I've done a thesis, I've done a postgraduate degree, and I know how much work goes into that. And yes, okay, misguided that she didn't get ethics approval and <laughs> consent from a participant, and that was stupid. But um, to pulp your own uh, mm. work that way would just be. Uh, it would just, uh, it would, it, it would send a lot of people into a spiral, mm. um, and then, then, then that, then sort of finding out about her husband um, leaving her and and discovering that he's actually gay, and you know, so you know, a couple of really big hits there. Um, There's a specific so, phrase used for how her state that she's in here, which is she lost interest in the world and it lost interest in her, which is mm. an incredibly astute way of summing up some forms of depression. It's a sense of disconnection. Isolation. Yeah. 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 Disconnected, you know, and like as a therapist, you're trying to bridge that connection with somebody um, and, and get them to bridge it themselves. So... Uh, I had something else in my head, but I can't remember it. So the suicide also—it's not just Mary's. That's it's seeded twice. Um, she mentions that she had a, a grand poppy Ralph, who uh, used to indulge in polar bear swims and found money in her mm. ear, and she never understood why he drank ammonia. And it's like mm. that's a, that's a child just completely unable to grasp the intricacies of a person's very 
private reasons for suicide. And then there's the issue of her mother, who, after their father is washed away on the beach, uh, you know, is, is drinking herself into a stupor again in his shed where he, uh, you, you know, was in, engaged in taxidermy for as a hobby and reaches out for the bottle of sherry, which is right next to a bottle of embalming fluid, which is how she mm. dies. But the way it's framed, it's a little vague as to her intentions at that point, mm. which mm. then primes Mary later in the film. Yeah, and I think that does actually feed into what Amy was saying about... Um, Uh, media depictions of methods Mm. of suicide Mm. if somebody is exposed to it to um, that happening in their life it means it's in their head it means Mm. that there is a higher risk that that's where they're going to go when they hit low points yeah and it's one of the things that we screen for when someone's feeling suicidal is sort of you know do you know anyone who has died by suicide or you know have have you attempted before all of those kind of things that um, <clears throat> may increase your knowledge about how to do that yeah. um, and for it to work? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And even beyond the uh, the suicidality elements of uh, how Mary has lost people, there's just the grief involved. Mm. She loses her grandfather, her father, her mother. She loses her husband, albeit that he's still alive. Um, she loses her her purpose when she makes the decision to, to pulp the book. She And she's is, lost Max, who was her absolutely. raison d'etre. Yeah, yeah. So she has all of this, this um, grief over different things that she uh, isn't able to express, isn't able to share with anybody. It's very powerful, uh, but it's, it's also so potent that it's liable to be very upsetting in a way that lasts, especially if anybody young watches the film. And the, the weird thing is, this is suitable for smart children, but it's also unsuitable for people who are sensitive. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a weird case of being kind of perfect and imperfect at the same time. It's probably about how you have those conversations with kids after it as well, mm. that sort of... Yeah, talking it through about what's in it. It doesn't feel safe. Like the first thing that happens no. that in, in the in the very beginning of the film, Mary's watching two a, a little girl. Mary is watching two cats hump across the street, and mm. Barry Humphrey says offhand, "Mary wished she could be friends with someone who could give her a piggyback ride." <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, is this going to be suitable? <laughs> Yeah, um, but the yeah. In terms of the the not having anybody to express her emotions to, um, not even herself. Mary starts mm. the movie with the mood ring when she marries. Uh, when her mother dies, and then the next bit is she's um, she's trying to reshape herself and marrying Damien. She throws the mood ring into the grave. She is basically saying, even I don't want to know how I feel right now. So I am binning this external expression of how I feel so that I can pretend everything is fine. And most of what she goes through in the next apparent scene of positivity where she gets married and finishes her thesis and everything's happy, happy, joy, joy, and her confidence is is kind of spilling out over the top, is fake. Hence the lipstick, hence the shoes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because sort of tying it together, like uh, I was saying to Amy, you know, I 
we would think we'd probably class her as having avoidant attachments. And these are people that are like extremely independent, they're self-directed, you know, uh, perhaps uncomfortable with intimacy. And, you know, she does, she's isolated emotionally from people, but for this different reason to Max. And then when she does the, the couple of connections that she does have, you know, with uh i guess with her parents but then also with max and then also you know there'd there be this emotional connection with with the clinical work the the thesis that she'd done you know all of those things get ticked off and then and then that's when you sort of see this real crisis around uh, this real personal crisis yeah. uh in she and that and that's sort of that's what's tipped us over so like when you assess for suicidality like one of the things i look for is is are you feeling hopeless? Mm. Like if mm. you can feel sad, but if you're hopeless, then and you've lost hope, then you often then that's when when you think well that's when you think about ending your life, and so that's a real marker to um, to watch out for as a clinician. Uh, and I, you know I think that that's what's going on for her. Well, I mean that's sort of what I sort of, sort of pieced together as what was going on for her. And that, that real punch in the gut seen i have to say so mm. yeah and she has all of this stuff that's gone on in her life that's got her to this point as well it's not just what's gone on recently um you know she's grown up in what appears to be a fairly deprived area um her, her parents are both alcoholics uh, her mother in particular is is abusive her father is benignly neglectful at best um it's just absent yeah really. he, he works and there. he spends his time in his shed they yeah. don't spend time together indeed mm. um and and she's this this is kind of the point for me where where Mary and Max's intersection is so incredibly beneficial in terms of of showing Mary an alternative way of looking at the world. Yes, it is a harsh lesson, and she learns it in a very tough way. But if you if you look at the way she interprets uh, her place in the world, when she's at her lowest, she's being surrounded by all of these images of the people in her life the way mary reacts is very conditional on how other people think about her yeah, her self-esteem is is, uh, is is very sensitive and can drop suddenly absolutely, with the slightest absolutely. And, and so the, the loss of people... A lot of, of which people, are not her fault at all. Yeah, totally. But the, mm. it means that the loss of people hits her very hard because how am I supposed to know who I am if I don't have that person to reflect me anymore? People's opinions of her, in, in particular Max's, obviously that's the, the big one, um, but she reacts to all sorts of people around her. and, and Dame. You know, in particular, who yeah. seems to be this thing, this this guy she wants to attain, and she yeah. she from a very young age she wanted to marry Earl Grey, the tea magnate, mm, um, yeah. and and have a dog and nine babies, uh, and then she switches that over to Damien, uh, played mm. by uh, Eric Banner yes. in a very brief role mm. uh, across the street to some boy who happens to also have a stammer as well. Mm. But they don't ever really get all that close. Her closeness she shares with Max, and he yeah. is illustrated as being an arm's length away, but just across the end of this very long table. Mm. Yeah, and when she gets her birthmark removed, the first thing she does is go out and flirt with Damien, and it's 
it's not exactly it's not rejected precisely but she's got shit on her shoe he, well, it's yeah, like she but... got the birthmark the color of poo <laughs> off her head and then the shit came back well yes there is that but the point there's being a lot of farting that that in this film as well it does it does underline that having the birthmark removed wasn't really for her it was for how she is yeah. reflected to other people and so because she has this very conditional uh, self-esteem that contrasts really starkly with uh, what Max has, which is actually, when you look at it, he has a really steady, consistent and honest appraisal of who he is and his place in the world. He knows Mm. he doesn't understand people very well. He's been able to work out over the years why that is. And he is okay with that. He is okay with him. And he is able to convey a degree of that to Mary by being this steadying influence throughout her life, one of the most consistent people, because he doesn't change dramatically between her being eight and her being, uh, I think she'd be 26, 27 by the time she goes out to New York. And the, the last thing that she gets to see and embrace of him is the fact that she meant so much to him he puts those letters on his ceiling so he can always see her Mm. and her communicating with him in a way that made sense to both of them it's also notable that he dies with a smile on his face which is something he wasn't normally Mm. able to achieve Mm. and a can of condensed milk in his hand (laughs) the alternative ending birds were going to be pecking his eyes out and I'm like thanks Adam what the hell you know that scene (laughs) where she's she's imagining I think Mary's imagining all the terrible things that might have happened to him Mm. and one of them is that he's died and his pets have eaten him (laughs) that was supposed to be the ending I think they may just have toyed with it and then they just used that animation there so it wouldn't go to waste. Because obviously this being stop motion took forever to put together. But sorry, you were... Um, you were getting to the apex of Mary's life and existence. Well, I think, honestly, that that is is fundamentally the the crucial part of it it's these are two people who are so disparate and so far apart that there's it takes a real twist of utter fluke for them to even connect Mm -hmm. but then when they do the uh the way the differences between them and their points of connection that seem so simple chocolate and noblets Mm -hmm. um, are are the things that they really hook together on um and and the 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 portrayal of how their differences reflect the colour scheme that we already discussed in such length, the fact that Mary writes everything in crayon and most of what she says is kind of constantly zipping backward. Not her thesis, she didn't write her thesis in crayon. (laughs) Thank goodness. Um, But um, yeah, her her thoughts constantly zipping backwards and forwards and, and having all of this overwhelming need to know about things and how that contrasts with Max's orderly typed this is a question, this is an answer, this is a question, this is an answer way of communicating. When I first uh, we first meet Mary, I was uh, wondering whether she might have um, uh, some kind of uh, focus-based condition which made her hyper-focus on certain things or, or, or have difficulty focusing. But because she's a child, that's actually just kind of... That scattershot approach to life is kind mm. of uh, you know, average yeah. for, for most kids. So it, it, that's what allows her to connect with Max initially and then her... Uh, maturing and being able to 
uh, understand him led her to down the wrong path, which is to try to understand him on a remote basis without really consulting him Absolutely, on this particular. Yeah. Mm. But this, I mean, this is is one of the things that really infuriates me about um, diagnosis of ADHD because on the one hand, it's all this bunch of symptoms that's extremely common in young children, so you can't really say yes, that's what it is until they've reached an age where they should. Question mark, have grown out of it. <laughs> However, you've then got, well, all of this stuff has to have been present before a certain age. Mm. It can't have suddenly manifested when you hit your teens. So then it's like, well, so what you're effectively saying there is if I do have it, I've got to live at least, at least 10 to 15 years trying to manage the damn thing before anybody can tell me that's what I have. It's worth noting, by the way, I didn't get my diagnosis until I was 41. I still haven't got my diagnosis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, humans are messy. And... uh... (laughs) The, the discussions that we have around the, the DSM, the, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which we're t- basing this uh, uh, diagnosis uh, from, like it's gone through five iterations now and the discussions around what we call reliability uh, and validity. So reliability is when you, can you repeat this diagnosis? Um, like, if, you know, if you, you Sharon goes to clinician person A and then clinician person B, are they going to give the same diagnosis? That's reliability. Mm. Um, and the reliability for some of these disorders are quite, you know, they're not what you would, what you would want. You know, di- reliability for a diagnosis of cancer is, you know, very, very confident. So, you know, it's really, really, humans are really, really messy just because of that variability and i think what's what's sort of interesting comparing mary and max they are an interesting duo in that they both feel defective um you know he's got this problem and then that causes him to sort of feel defective and i'm assuming that that's what causes his depression whereas you know the the rejection that uh, Ma- uh mary feels sort of seems to drive her defectiveness, shame kind of stuff. And there's this subjugation uh, type behavior. You know, she surrender, subjugates her needs and, and her expression of emotions because they're not going to be met by her environment. Mm. Max, Max is engaged in a therapeutic process. They diagnose him late. Um, mm. Mind you, I think Asperger's was first came, was first, documented in the 40s so you know it would have been 30 years in the 70s i think it was in the 80s he had he had his big breakdown um you know and and amy was like texting me saying uh when he gets news about the the thesis the book is that he doesn't have his big breakdown then Mm. he's had already and he manages it the second time, mm. right? And he doesn't completely crack open. He doesn't lose and, it straight away. He tries to put words to what's going on. You know, he lists all of those emotions and things like that. He's not in the corner on the stool. Yeah, he's, yeah, like um, he's, yeah, yeah. He like tears tears the, the the typewriter apart in rage, but he's not shut down. So it's actually no. a better it's a better response. Whereas, so he's actually gone on that growth journey and he sort of accepted himself like what you were saying Sharon whereas whereas I think you guys have sort of very aptly described you know she hasn't 
accepted that stuff and she's been trying to cover up that those defectiveness feelings that keep getting reinforced because she's searching for them, searching for ways to deal with them in a way that's not actually going to resolve yeah. that or feeling. And you see that a lot in kids who have grown up in that sort of uh, environment, uh, particularly, you know, the things like her mum drawing the smile on her face and things like that teaches kids that they can't trust their own internal experiences so it's Mm -hmm. like I can't it's not only that I can't trust the people around me because who knows what they might do but what's going on inside me can't be trusted either like how can I be certain that I actually feel this way Mm -hmm. you know that's the need for things like a mood ring and for checking with other people and all of those kind of things um you know she's looking for stability and connection and to know things Mm -hmm. for certain when absolutely everything is is chaotic and sort of ankylous. Yeah. Mm, children of alcoholics frequently, or well, I shouldn't say alcoholics, but children of people who have you know, a problem with alcohol, the, the, their parent is chaotic, so they often mm. have a problem with anxiety because uh, they're, they're used to being on guard and they're used to things not going well and they often withdraw and stuff like mm. that. So sort of it's a, it's a, a good mix for fertile ground for self-esteem problems, mm. Mm. things like that. This is may may or may not be relevant, but uh, something that was glaring to a, both Amy and I uh, was when Max has his breakdown and there's a bottle. <laughs> <knows what>, <laughs> I know where you're going. Um, there's a bottle of Zoloft, uh, which uh, on the sideboard, which is what they were going to treat him with, um, which would be the drug sertraline, which is a SSRI, which wouldn't have been available in the 80s because it, it, it came out for widespread use in the 90s. And why that's sort of relevant is that that drug is actually has got much less side effects than its precursors, which were or previous versions, which were tricyclic antidepressants, which had like a lot of toxicity. So the problem with that is that you could take an antidepre- a tricyclic antidepressant and get a toxic side effect from that, which you don't really want to give to people who've got uh, severe depression mm-hmm. for obvious reasons mm-hmm. and we also thought you know he might have been treated with ECT back then mm-hmm. um, people mm-hmm. still get ECT now it's actually quite effective apparently for treatment resistant depression but um, mm-hmm. what is ECT know. for the listeners who aren't uh, uh, um, electro- electroconvulsive therapy okay. so electric or electroshock therapy is what's often known as that people get like a uh, a shock to the brain, they induce a seizure and they mm. do that a couple of times a week until the depression improves. It's actually mm. quite effective. It does have some stuff around some mild... It's always problems. portrayed barbarically in films as oh, a very yeah. negative thing. Absolutely. So, and yeah. there's... There's sort of a, a newer generation treatment which, you know, ECT targets... Well, it doesn't... It goes for your entire brain. Um, whereas there's a newer treatment called TMS, which goes for one particular region. So they're, they're trialling that to see. But it's one of those uh, things, a little bit like the treatment for bipolar lithium, mm. that we don't entirely know the mechanisms of how it works, yeah. um, which is always a curious thing in medicine. <laughs> Indeed. Len had saved the day, and after 45 years, he finally conquered his agoraphobia. 
please find enclosed my entire noblet collection as a sign that I forgive you. When I received your book, the emotions inside my brain felt like they were in a tumble dryer, smashing into each other. The hurt felt like when I accidentally stapled my lips together. The reason I forgive you is because you are not perfect. You are imperfect. And so am I. All humans are imperfect. Even the man outside my apartment who litters. When I was young, I wanted to be anybody but myself. Dr. Bernard Hasselhoff said, if I was on a desert island, then I would have to get used to my own company. Just me and the coconuts. He said I would have to accept myself, my warts and all, and that we don't get to choose our warts. They are a part of us, and we have to live with them. We can, however, choose our friends. And I am glad I have chosen you. Dr. Bernard Hasselhoff also said that everyone's lives are like a very long sidewalk. Some are well paved. Others, like mine, have cracks, banana skins, and cigarette butts. Your sidewalk is like mine, but probably not as many cracks. Hopefully one day our sidewalks will meet and we can share a can of condensed milk. You are my best friend. You are my only friend. Your American pen pal, Max Jerry Horowitz. Considering that they do never get to meet, and, and as Alex said, that is, I think, a somewhat cruel way of closing out the story. It is tragic, but it is hopeful, and that we have... Mary as this now in Max's black and white world, this spot of muddled and muddy colour, but colour. Mm. Yeah, it's a surprisingly beautiful ending for the complex and frustrating other emotions it brings up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The fact that this is a stop-motion film is kind of perfect because I don't think you can enter into stop-motion as a uh, career unless you are neurodivergent in some way, unless you specifically prize the meticulousness and specificity of these tiny little movements that take forever to illustrate and that you specifically... Like, they would craft these beautiful dioramas that they called one-hit wonders because they were only in one bit of the film. So it's it's just there for a few seconds and then it's gone. And especially now, knowing that the rest of the world in 
the abstract love stop motion. They look at it and they go, oh, that's lovely. But in reality, this made $1.7 million. No one wants to see stop motion. Leica is the absolute peak of stop motion animation these days. And even their movies basically make back what they spend on them. Except their last one, which lost a lot of money. I love stop motion and it, it feels like it's exemplary of a certain type of person who wants to make stop motion and while it's still in the world those people's voices are still being heard and that's just that aspect of it but for that to be the vehicle to which we got this film conveyed to us just makes it all the more suitable for the subject matter Mm. Mm. Um, you got a sense of being taken on a journey I think yeah there's scenes of in in i guess uh, in new york you know the the I've, i found them particularly mesmerizing mm. um and you know you sort of you're really invited into this different world and i think that that sort of highlighted the differences and then also explained them without sort of verbally having to uh, yeah it was, it was it was i think it was the the craft in this the craft in this film is amazing uh, yeah that's about, that's about the only way I can describe it I think hmm. also one note I did make was a quote from Adam Elliott's short film Harvey Crumpet which is on the Blu-ray for this film so if you ever get the Blu-ray that's on there too it's 22 minutes and it's it's a really neat kind of prototype for this but it's a quote that could pretty much sum up the past few years but especially how serious situations have been differently handled by governments and populations on a global scale in 2020. Everybody ready? Facts still exist, even if they are ignored. Mm. (laughs) (sighs) And on that bombshell, would Hunter and Amy like to tell the listeners where they can find your show and what your focus is? Uh, so we're two psychologists. Obviously, we live in Melbourne. Uh, you can find us at twoshringspod.com or anywhere you want to find podcasts. We should be on them, uh, except for Spotify, but I uh, haven't got organized for that bit. But uh, And uh, we, much like this episode, we will pick a, pick a topic. Uh, frequently, it's a psychi- psychiatric disorder, psychological disorder, and talk through the symptoms, talk through the theory, talk through what it's like as a clinician to work with. Um, if you are a movie listener, we did, um, we've done two movie-themed podcasts, one where we diagnosed all the characters from Harry Potter with personality disorders, and most recently we diagnosed the characters from Star Wars with personality disorders. That's uh, Diagnosing the Skywalkers, so um, that's a bit of an epic episode, so check that one out. It is. And we've also done a couple of episodes on portrayal of therapists in film and TV as well, which are a bit of fun, fitting in with that thing that you said at the start, Alex, that well, they're it's all pretty rubbish. rare. <laughs> yep, it's pretty rare to find someone good. Well, There's a guy in the West Wing who was good. <laughs> okay, here's, here's why I think that might be. If you start a film with a competent, effective and successful therapist, you don't you've have got no movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they never end the, the film talking to a therapist who was the person who, who could help them them, unless it's a film like Good Will Hunting, where that's the point. Uh, the Thomas Crown Affair, yeah. the remake. Mm. Mm. But, but that's reflexive uh, in real life. They, yes. People people leave you and fix their problems. They don't. Mm. They don't that's rarely true. do that. I okay. mean, they tell you 
But either way, most basically most screenwriters aren't therapists and they don't do their research. So they go, what do therapists say? Uh, they just say this. Like a therapist would basically tell you what everything wrong with you is, right? Yeah. Also, as we discussed, um, watching a therapist do their thing well, you don't often see a lot going on. Mm. <laughs> it's, no. it's not dramatic. You sat there well, listening, garbling, and non-judgmentally. Anyway. Thank you both for coming on and making this so much more of an episode than we could have done alone. Oh, you're welcome. It's lots of fun. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you to our backer on this one, Chris Kelly. We hope you got what you were after. Next week, Sharon and I return to our ongoing Spielberg season with Empire of the Sun. It's a hard-going watch. <laughs> Not so much after this one, but like, it's, a, <laughs> it's a World War II film. But we both do recommend tracking it down. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's yeah. Out. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Angus Lee, Kevin Bay, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Johan Clayson, Joe Gasiga, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Matthew A. Siebert, Kat Esman, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Tom Painter, Dan Hepner, Marty Huey, Mark Lutsch, Brian Novak, Frankie Punzi, Aaron Lecluse. Lorraine Chisholm, Timothy Green, Cassandra Newman, Duran Barnett, Benjamin, Joseph Gluck, Greg Downing, Kieran Dashler, Dan Mayer, Jameis Enright, David Sheely, Chris Finnick, and Joe Crowe.